We've got a sort of world of new possibilities. If we understand the aging process, if we can develop medicines for aging itself, we've just got a much, much bigger chance of making a difference. Welcome to Teach Me Something New. I'm your host, Britt Morin, and this is a production of iHeartRadio and Brit & Co. All my life, everyone's told me I should focus on being good at one thing. But the truth is, I'm curious about a lot of things. But how do you learn about everything? The answer? Make the world's best experts teach you in less than an hour. So come along with me as we all learn something new. Ever since the dawn of time, people have been talking about myths such as the fountain of youth and how we can revert back to our younger years. But as technology advances, scientists are actually discovering that we can slow down and maybe even reverse the effects of aging. Today, our guest Andrew Steele, computational biology researcher and best-selling author of Ageless, the new science of getting older without getting old, is here to teach us all about the emerging technologies around aging and things you can do to help slow the process. If true, this could be the greatest revolution in the history of medicine, one that has the potential to improve billions of lives, save trillions of dollars, and transform the human condition. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Hello, thanks for having me. Well, you know, I'm I'm a hot 35 over here, so uh, aging is actually really on my mind because I'm like it's just starting to happen. <laughs> it's just starting to happen. I found my first gray hair this year. Oh, no. Um, you know, I'm definitely using all the retinols and eye creams and all of that stuff and I'm like, what's going on? So, I am really fascinated to talk with you. But um before we get right into that, I want to ask you about being a scientist. Like were mm -hmm. you always interested in science or did this career path come out of left field? No, definitely. I've been interested since I was a tiny kid. My mum says that I've wanted to be a physicist since the age of about seven. Wow. And I think that was largely driven by just, I was overwhelmed with sort of awe by the night sky, basically. I was lucky to grow up somewhere where the skies are pretty dark. And that just meant that I was always outside, like looking up, wondering, wondering what it was all about. And I think actually, originally, my dream career would have been like theoretical astrophysicist. You know, I probably wanted to be Stephen Hawking or something. But as I um, sort of progressed through my career, I did a, a degree in physics first. And during that time, I learned that a lot of astrophysics is, you know, computer modeling and solving equations. So I, I got a little bit less interested in that and became what's called a condensed matter physicist, which basically means I'm interested, was it, I was interested in like solids and liquids and stuff. I was particularly looking at magnetism and superconductivity. And after that, I mean, I guess we'll, we'll come on to talking about aging, but I actually hadn't studied biology officially since the age of 16. So I had a bit of catching up to do, but I tried to apply those skills to biological data. And actually computational biology really is uh, a sort of growth and a fusion area at the moment, because you end up with uh, the lab that I was working in. About half of us were, you know, physicists or mathematicians or people who had not so much biological background. And the other half were biologists who, you know, hadn't necessarily done much coding. And sort of between us, we were a powerful team. But, you know, individually, we obviously had our sort of gaps in our experience. Well, I haven't taken biology since I was 16 either, so maybe there's hope for me still. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm not going to be a scientist like you are, but I will <laughs> learn from you. I will learn from you. So then fast forward to what you said in the New York Times article. You said that you decided aging was the single most important scientific challenge of our time. And you were studying physics and, and all of these things while you were doing that. So what made you decide to get into aging? 
So I actually, and this sort of reflects my very numerical statistical background, I changed career basically because of a graph. It's a, that's a slight oversimplification, but it's not much of one. And that graph is the graph of your odds of death, depending on how old you are. So it's a bit of a, bit of a morbid graph. Oh. And the idea is, as a human, uh, let's, let's take us, we're, we're both in our mid-30s, and that means our odds of death every year are a bit less than one in a thousand. And I like those odds, right? Because that means, let's imagine that one to extend out to infinity. Yeah, not bad. We'd lived into our thousand and thirties on average. So clearly something goes wrong and our odds of death start to increase. And actually as a human being, your risk of death doubles about every eight years. And that means, you know, it starts off at one in a thousand. It's quite small. Double that, that's still only one in 500. So in your 40s, your risk of death is still pretty low. By the time you get to 65, your odds of not making your 66th birthday are about 1%. By the time you get to 80, your odds of not making it through the next year are about 5%. And if you're lucky enough to make it into your 90s, because obviously a lot of people die before then, even with these what sound like relatively small odds, your odds of death in a given year in your 90s are about one in six. So that's sort of life and death at the roll of a dice. And as a human, you know, you might look at that and just be terrified. There's this exponential wall of mortality, you know, coming up for all of us. But as a scientist, you look at that and you think, isn't this weird that all humans go wrong in this sort of, it's quite sudden, you know, toward toward the end of your 60s, early 70s, your 80s, your risk of death is just shooting through the roof. So why is it that all of these different diseases, cancer, heart disease, dementia, they're all happening at the same time, your body's becoming more frail, everything's going wrong. And so you think there must be some process that's synchronizing all of these things. And if we could understand that process, Maybe we could do something about all of the you know, terrible problems that aging causes, the cancer, the frailty, the cognitive decline, all of that stuff. And so that's just what got me really, really excited. So, so okay, so I'm one in a thousand <laughs> from dying from, from age-related diseases. Um, mm-hmm. And then you... From oh, from everything like a car wreck and everything. From too. everything, so that so most of your risk of death is things like car accidents at the moment because there's there's a small chance you'll get cancer. You probably won't die from it, even if you do. So yeah, like that, that's that's your total risk of death is about one in a thousand a year in your thirties ballpark. And and when does that start accelerating? Are we talking like fifties, sixties? Like, is that, how much longer do I have for us to cure aging before before we before I have lower odds? <laughs> I mean. We've got life expectancy. So, you know, you're, you're going to be expected. The average life expectancy in the US is, I think it's a bit less than 80 years. It might be a little bit more if you're a woman because oh, yes. so, women have a bit of an advantage yeah, over us guys. And, um, you know, so what that means is that was your life expectancy at birth. But actually, because you've made it through your first 30 years, you've dodged a few bullets already. Um, you know, that's probably slightly larger. And the other thing that's really exciting is that um, it, it's a bit complicated on a per country basis. So actually, the US's life expectancy is flatlining a bit at the moment for various complicated social medical reasons that we can talk about but the overall global picture is quite optimistic so since the mid 1800s we've been adding about three months a year to the best life expectancy in the world and that sort of means the state of the art life expectancy is getting better that fast so that means that every year you stay alive your risk of death so your, your date of death rather recedes about three months into the future so you know the, another way to think about that is six hours a day so if you get a good night's sleep that's not time wasted because you're effectively winning that back on the end of your life by the increase in life expectancy because we're living through you know improvements in social conditions improvements in medical care and that's why you know even though some of these treatments could be you know 10 decades away that's quite soon for most people alive today i would say uh, i i hope that it's true so okay three gain three hours a day every day that i'm alive yeah six hours a day it's three months a year it's about 25 percent basically of whatever Okay. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And so so what do you think my average age of death would be as a 35-year-old right now? 
Well, I think it's a bit of a meaningless question because yeah. the reason being, I'm convinced that the sort of stuff that I talk about in the book is coming sufficiently soon that it's hard to draw a line on where human life expectancy is going to change. Because you know, the, 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 the fact is, we've been like shockingly consistent for the last 200 years. If you think about what's driven that increase in life expectancy, back in the 1800s, a lot of it was about hygiene and you know, getting rid of infectious diseases. And that really, really persisted. We invented you know, antibiotics and vaccines and started rolling those things out. And a huge amount of that early life expectancy gain was from that. It was stopping kids dying, which really improves the life expectancy because obviously if you die at the age of five, that drags the average age of death down so much. And then in more recent times, since about the 1950s, we haven't had a lot more, at least in the rich countries, to ring out in terms of uh, life expectancy for really, really young people because we've we've you know cured a lot of the infectious diseases, basically, or we've, we've vaccinated them away. And that means we've, uh, in order to increase life expectancy further, we've had things like you know improved lifestyles, improved diets, people having more time to exercise and that kind of thing on the lifestyle side now on the medicine side you know we've got heart surgery we've got cancer treatments that just didn't exist back in the 1950s and that sort of thing and that means that most of the life expectancy gains since then have been this sort of incremental progress of medicine but i think that if we understand the aging process if we can develop medicines for aging itself we've just got a much much bigger chance of making a difference and to give a sort of statistical example of that if we literally cured cancer, if I'd written a book and I was oh. like, I've got, there's this new treatment, it's, cancer is no longer a thing, that would add only about three years to life expectancy, even if you completely cured cancer. And the reason is there's you know, heart disease, there's dementia, there's diabetes, there's all this stuff waiting in the wings when you're an old person. You know, if one thing doesn't get you, something else will. But if we can intervene in the aging process, we've suddenly got this whole, you know, sort of world of new possibility to attack all of these different diseases, all of these different causes of death at the same time. And so that's why I think it's it's really hard to gauge. You know, we could get unlucky. None of this could work. And we could just, you know, live to you know 85 or 90 and we'll be you know, relatively happy with that. Or it could be that something absolutely transformative happens. And, you know, where we're going to fall on that is just very, very hard to predict, basically. I totally hear what you're saying about diseases, right? Yeah, I know. I mean, cancer, I think we are with, you know, within, I don't know, tell me how many years of potentially curing some parts of it, right? I know there are so many different, you know, the Parker Institute and all of these amazing scientists figuring out how to cure cancer. Dementia is, a, is another one, but I know a ton of investments going into that. So there's all the diseases. But then what about just like frail bones? <laughs> like, you know, everyone that falls and breaks their hip when they're old or like, you know, their back gets really sore and they can't walk anymore. You know, what about the rest of the body? Are, are we working on science right now to help us become stronger and actually prevent ourselves from aging in that way? I mean, that this is the problem. So the, the, to sort of break that down, it's quite a complicated answer because you're right that in relative terms, we're spending a lot on research into things like cancer and dementia. But in absolute terms, it's a very, very small amount of money. We're spending a handful of dollars per American per year on things like cancer research, even though it's something that kills about a third of Americans. So it's just mind-blowing when you try and drill into these statistics. However, what's even worse is if you start looking at aging biology. The US is unusual in having a National Institute of Aging, so that's a specific government body devoted to funding oh. research into aging. However, it's called the NIA, and there's a running joke in aging biology that that actually stands for National Institute on Alzheimer's Disease, because two-thirds of its funding goes to looking at dementia, not the aging process that causes the dementia. And so only about $350 million a year is invested in what's called the Aging Biology Division of the NIA. So that means just over a dollar per American. And you know, when you compare that to the $4 trillion a year that is spent on healthcare in the US, that's less than a 10,000th, even though a huge amount of that healthcare spending is on those chronic diseases of old age. And to come back to your, your the, sort of the very first part of your question, 
that's what I'm really excited about in terms of treating aging. Because if you treat your cancer, you know, say, say you get a lump, you go to your, your doctor, they send you to an oncologist, you know, you've got cancer, they give you chemotherapy, they give you an operation, they try and cut the cancer out, but they don't treat the rest of your body. They don't treat your failing heart. They don't treat your failing mind. And, you know, that things like uh, bone thinning and muscle wasting, there's just not an awful lot that modern medicine... It, a lot of these things don't have a diagnosis. So there's a word for muscle wasting in aging biology called sarcopenia. And it's only just been added as a, as a sort of diagnosis that doctors can hand out. And that means that, you know, we're just miles from treating these things. We're, we're thinking about everything in silos. We think about everything in terms of disease. But if we could treat the aging process itself, we'd be reducing the risk of cancer, reducing the risk of heart disease. That's all good. We'd be reducing the risk of loss of bone density, reducing the loss of muscle mass. We'd be reducing the wrinkles, the gray hair, all the sort of cosmetic stuff that everyone gets very excited about. All of them potentially with the same or a handful of similar medications. So that's why I'm really, really excited about this stuff because it, it just it's a new a new paradigm in medicine. That's why I describe it as being this potential enormous revolution because it's just not how we do medicine these days. Also, there's a National Institute of Aging. That's a new stat for me. That's amazing. I, I agree with you that $350 million comparatively to $4 trillion seems like not a lot. Um, so we should, can we do like a Kickstarter or something? Because I want to start investing in, in anti-aging. <laughs> um, and and I, th I did think, you know, everyone does wonder about the superficial parts of aging, um, which which maybe is not so superficial, because it's like, you know, the gray hair, the wrinkles, and especially in my world, the women's world, like everyone's talking about anti-aging products. Mm -hmm. A lot of people think they're BS, you know, or unresearched. You know, there's retinol for wrinkles and there's like all these sort of ideas that maybe there's like a gray hair pill being invented. Like are any of these things actually like viable for anti-aging? I think by and large, the answer is no. They're usually not actively harmful. One of the things I mentioned in the health advice chapter of the book is uh, nutritional supplements. So things like vitamin supplements. And most of those are just useless. And the reason that I say that, so the sort of biology side of it is the, the idea was we thought back in the sort of 80s and 90s, a lot of aging was driven by these things called free radicals. These are very reactive chemicals. They're produced as an accidental byproduct of the fact that we've got sugar and we've got oxygen buzzing around in our cells. These are very reactive chemicals. They're, they're what power us being alive. And the idea was that these uh, occasionally your body will sort of fumble one of these chemicals, create a free radical. The free radical will then go off and ravage your DNA, ravage your proteins and cause damage, which then goes on to cause aging. Now, and the idea was then that if you took a you know a vitamin C tablet, for example, vitamin C is an antioxidant uh, vitamin. That means it would soak up those free radicals and potentially slow your aging down. And there are two ways in which that hypothesis has been demolished. Firstly, in the lab, we've shown that uh, basically oxidative damage has a much more complicated relationship with aging than that simple, you know, causes damage, causes aging idea might suggest. And secondly, a recent systematic review looking at 300,000 people taking various antioxidants and various vitamins found that they either had no effect or a small negative effect on people's life, um, on people's risk of death, basically. So they just don't really do anything in, in, in large numbers. And some of them do have a little bit of evidence behind them. But honestly, I think the problem is there's, there's almost nothing we can do now. I think that's going to change very, very soon. I am, ex as you can hear, like really excited about this stuff. But right now, there's almost nothing. Yeah. I mean, there is nothing supplements wise I'd recommend people go out and take. I think it's just a, in spite of the fact that more than half of Americans take a supplement every day, I think most of it's just money wasted. Yeah, I mean, I take some. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but what about what about the gray hair pill? I've actually heard about this. Like there's a pill people are working on that might reverse gray hair. 
I'm sure people are working on it, but I think the science, there was actually a fascinating paper about grey hair that came out only, I think it was last week or two weeks ago, where they demonstrated firstly that this sort of, what seems like an urban legend that grey hair is driven by stress does seem to have some truth to it. But the thing that was more exciting about it was they found these people who'd been having these stressful events and their hair was turning grey. They plucked out some hairs and they looked at them under the microscope and they looked along the whole length of the hair. What they found was that the hair would start out, say, brown, then it would go white, and then it would turn back to brown again. So you have this weird sort of stripy hair going on. And what was really exciting about that is, although we don't fully understand the mechanism by which hairs go grey, it's clearly at least partially reversible. So this isn't a one-way street where, you know, obviously it is to an extent because that's what happens as we get older but it's probably the case that those cells the melanocytes which are the cells that create the pigment that keep your hair colored rather than white they're probably not just dying they're there but for some reason they're turning off and if we can just reinvigorate their sort of youthful um youthful powers of coloration we could have our hair color back and that's just something you find over and over again in aging research that these things you know you think they're irreversible but actually there's some way that you can give some molecule or change the conditions slightly and you can reinvigorate that sort of youthful power that these things had to regenerate so that's another sort of optimistic idea i've read that paper too and i was so excited by that because like i said i've started finding you know some gray hairs and you know what like this has probably been the most stressful year of my life like you know covid and all kinds I of think things for going all of on. Us, yeah. i know and <laughs> and then so when i found my first gray and i know there are people out there that are like brit shut up like your first gray whatever um but i was like no like i have this dark brown hair and you know what? I really think I found less now. I mean, sure, I've plucked a couple out, but I do think like I, I've looked and there's less. And you know why? Like because I've gotten a vaccine, because I'm like able to be out in the world again, socializing, I'm taking better care of myself. And so I think you're totally right. Like I think stress is such a factor. I mean, look at all the presidents, right? Like at least in the <laughs> U.S., like Obama, those first four years was like, you know, dark hair, super gray hair. You know, it's just it's crazy. It's to all watch those that national happen. security briefings. It's an absolute nightmare. <laughs> I'm like, I'm never going to be president because I'll just like lose all my hair. <laughs> and then what about skincare? Like what about wrinkles? Is there anything about that that, you know, we can feel optimistic about? I think there's, and I'm not an expert in this, I think there's some evidence for retinol. I'm not sufficiently medically qualified to recommend that people go out and use retinol cream. There are also risks of having too much, like you can overdose on it, basically. But there is some evidence for that. I'm more excited about the sort of stuff that's coming in the future, because as I said, all of these things, once we come up with the treatment, I was actually chatting with uh, somebody who was working on the aging of collagen, because your collagen gets right. does get various things attached to it yeah. as you get older. And collagen is a huge, important structural component of skin. It's also a huge, important structural component, basically, of your whole body. Like some, I think it's three kilos or something of your body oh, wow. is just collagen in various forms. It's in your bones, it's in your arteries. And this scientist I was speaking to, she said, you know, a lot of the way in which this collagen ages is the same, regardless of where it's located. However, she wanted to concentrate her research on the collagen in the arteries. The reason being, you know, your arteries, your veins, these are the things that go wrong in heart disease. They're the things that can go wrong in your drive dementia and all kinds of different diseases. And effectively, you know, she'd rather have wrinkly skin and non-wrinkly arteries, as it were, than the other way around. But I think the fact is that once you've nailed the non-wrinkly arteries and we're starting to, you know, prevent deaths from heart disease, it's not going to be a huge, like, stretch to adapt those kinds of medicines so that they can target the collagen in the skin as well. Okay, so if we're thinking about this sequentially, <laughs> like how we're, how we're reversing aging, it sounds like we're going to, like, end the disease diseases and then we'll get to sort of the superficial parts of it and collagen and wrinkles and gray hair and all of that right so we're gonna we're gonna get to the stuff that really matters first 
I think we'll do some of it by accident. And the reason, so we, I think the thing that I'm most excited about, and I'm going to, I'm going to tell a story of the treatment I'm most excited about now, which is the, a treatment that can kill something called senescent cells. These are aged cells that accumulate in all of our bodies as we get older. They're cells that have divided a lot of times. Um, so perhaps they divided too many times. And what your body does is it puts on the brakes. It says you're going to stop dividing now because you divided so many times. I'm a bit suspicious you might be a cancer. Because, of course, what cancer is, is it's just a cell that keeps on dividing and dividing and dividing. So your body puts on the brakes this sort of anti-cancer mechanism. And what happens when you're young is that your immune system swings by, gobbles up these senescent cells, and, you know, everything's fine. Everything just carries on as normal. But as you get older, your cells are divided more times. They also get more DNA damage just because you've been around for longer, and that's another way that cells can go senescent. And your immune system is getting less effective just because you're getting older. So all of these things combine, you're accumulating more of these cells, and your immune system is worse at getting rid of them. And so as they accumulate in your body, they effectively accelerate the aging process. And scientists have developed these drugs called mm-hmm. senolytics. Lytic is just like a biology word for killing, basically, or dissolving. And they're given these drugs, they kill the senescent cells and leave the rest of the cells in the body intact. And they've given these drugs to mice. They give them to 24-month-old mice. Now, mice obviously have a much shorter lifespan, as anyone who's ever had a mouse as a pet will know, than we do. So 24 months is roughly equivalent to sort of 70 in human years. And that means they, you know, they give them to old, old mice. They cleared out some of the senescent cells. The mice lived a bit longer, so that's a bonus. But they weren't just living longer, sort of stumbling along in geriatric ill health. They were less frail. They were able to run further and faster on a little mousy treadmill. They had fewer cataracts, less cancer, less heart disease. So it wasn't just a single disease it was preventing. It was sort of a whole swathe of these different things. The mice were more curious. So if you put a young mouse in a new environment like a maze, it'll scurry around and explore and try and see what's what and try and find some food or whatever. If you put an old mouse in the maze, they're often a bit more anxious, a bit more hesitant, maybe just a bit lazier because they're, you know, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> you gave the mice these senolytic drugs, it seemed to rejuvenate some of that youthful curiosity. Then the final thing, and the reason I've gone off on this huge sidetrack in answer to your question, is that these animals that have had the senolytic drugs they just look fantastic. And I say this, you know, as a computational biologist who's never dealt with mice in the lab, I would, you know, I'd have no idea which end to pick it up from even. And, and yet, they just look great. You know, if you Google pictures of these things, they've got better hair, they've got less grey hair, they've got thicker, plumper skin. Wow. And so what that really shows you is these senescent cells, they're one of what I call the hallmarks of ageing in the book. They're a fundamental driver of loads of different age-related processes, age-related diseases, but also the wrinkles and grey hair. So it might be that we develop this drug that's going to you know, try and help people with arthritis or help people with age-related blindness or something. And they might just discover their hair's looking better as a result. And so slowly but surely, you're going to accidentally cure a lot of the cosmetic stuff. Obviously, that's what we'll go after first. But if, if you know, suddenly everyone will be like, oh, my knee is very sore. Yeah. <laughs> I really need some of, that, some of that arthritis medication to sort out my hair and skin. I love this. Oh my gosh, get the senescent cells out of me, man. I- <laughs> that's incredible. I love. I also always love how scientists and mice have so many interactions together. And you're like, those those are really good looking mice at the end of the day. <laughs> like, I don't know. I wouldn't know what makes a good looking mouse or a bad looking mouse. No, that's a fascinating study. And so I know you're in the UK and we're in the US. Is research happening in this category of around the world or are only a few countries working on this aging reversal science? It's it's really funny, and it's sort of, again similar to my answer to your previous question. It's amazing because it's everywhere, and I've written this book that I you know I hope is packed with facts and information. There's loads of stuff in there, and yet there's nothing like enough. 
So it's happening in every country. I spoke to scientists in, you know, in Spain and in Switzerland, and there are some scientists in Japan. I got in touch with in Korea, and like, you know, obviously the US and the UK because the language barrier helps, <laughs> or the lack of language barrier helped. But there are it's, it, this stuff is happening all over the world in loads of really big, prestigious universities and research institutes, and yet there's not enough of it. So this is it's this real bizarre sort of catch twenty two situation. It's very hard to get your head around. But yeah, it's going on everywhere. There's loads of exciting stuff, and yet simultaneously nothing like enough. And so, and if you were just gonna like pick a pick a year in the future where you thought like, okay, definitely by this time we'll have figured out a major breakthrough. What year would that be? I think we're going to, so, so Senolytics, uh, there are already 20 or 30 companies trying to turn these things from sort of lab bench to actual clinical application. And the, the first clinical trial started, I think, in 2018. So this stuff is ongoing. And if those things work, the way, the way it's going to happen, it's sort, sort of like you were saying, you know, we'll go after the diseases first and then the cosmetic stuff later. These things are all currently being developed to treat particular diseases, things like arthritis, things like age-related blindness, where we know that these senescent cells are actually directly implicated. But what will probably happen is, you know, say you've got, a, there's, there's a disease called lung fibrosis, which they're also being trialed for, which is where your lungs basically get very badly scarred as you get older. That's a really serious condition, and we haven't got any very effective treatments for it currently. So what that means is that, you know, people who have that problem, they're willing to take a risk. They're willing to take a punt on a new drug that might have side effects. We don't really know what's going on. They can try it. And if they try it, and if the drug is effective, i.e. it clears the senescent cells, it makes their lungs better. But most importantly, if it's safe, you know, if it doesn't have intolerable side effects that, by the way, we haven't seen in mice, but obviously mice can't talk. So there could be certain things wrong with them that we just don't know about because they're not telling us. But if that drug's safe, then we might think, okay, it works for the lung fibrosis people. Let's roll that out to, a, you know, let's widen the net, basically. Let's give it to people, perhaps you might say, are oh, people who are in the early stages of heart disease. We can clear out some of those senescent cells and reduce their risk of heart disease. Again, they're people who are at risk, so they're, they're willing to take a little bit of a risk, but they might not be so willing to take a punt on some wild new drug as the people with the lung fibrosis were. And then sort of the next step would be, okay, let's think about 50-year-olds. There's nothing perhaps wrong with a given 50-year-old apart from the fact they were born 50 years ago and they've accumulated loads of these senescent cells. You're going to have a really high bar for safety on that. I don't want to pop a pill when I'm 50 and otherwise healthy that could potentially damage my health. But as we sort of slowly accrue more evidence and work our way down the seriousness of the conditions, that's how it's going to happen. So I really feel like the first senolytic drugs that are actually in clinical use could be in the next couple of years Whoa. if these clinical trials all go right and we get lucky. However, it's going to be a little bit longer until that filters down to, you know, me and you just popping them every morning in order to try and keep us in the Will we be 50? Nice <laughs> like, will we be the 50 year old? <laughs> yeah, we it might actually, okay, okay. we might I'm nail gonna, it. <laughs> I'm going to just plan on that. So by the time I'm 50, Andrew, you better make sure this happens. <laughs> so, but I do think there are, are a lot of implications for a world that keeps aging, right? And you talk about this in the book. So you and I are 50. All of a sudden, we're getting rid of a lot of these senescent cells. We're living to be, I don't know, 150, 200. <laughs> but I thought I was going to retire when I'm 65. And now what do I do for another 80 years of my life? What do you think the implications are long term if if we do crack the aging gap? I think it's a Firstly, a really fascinating question. There's a whole book to be written on this, frankly, so I didn't have space to really, really go into detail. But I think they're going to be overwhelmingly positive. And the reason I say that is, firstly, I think it's just really important. People often ask you really, really naughty ethical questions, and they are valid ethical questions. The most common question I got back when we could go to dinner parties and weddings, and hopefully will again soon when that's a thing, is what about overpopulation? And it's just really fascinating. That's the first thing people's minds jump to. They're like, you know, if people are living much, much longer lives, aren't we going to have 
you know, huge strain on the climate, huge strain on the other resources on the planet. And I think the first and most important thing to think about with all of these questions, whether it's how we're going to solve the pensions or won't get bored working for an extra 20 years, is on the other side of the balance sheet is the world's biggest humanitarian challenge. The consequence of that, that doubling of death every eight years that I talked about at the beginning, is that two thirds of deaths globally, that's not just in the rich world, but in the whole world are caused by aging. And obviously that number's increasing as time goes on. So 100,000 people every day die of aging, you know, cancer and dementia, all this stuff the aging process causes. So we've got this huge thing. I'm willing to work a bit harder on climate change and you know, try and do a bit of pension, you know, financial gymnastics in order to create this huge amount of healthy life. Because that's just going to be absolutely transformative of what it means to be human. Because you know, I, I talk a lot about this stuff in terms of deaths. A lot of people aren't that worried about dying because you've got to go sometime and you, know, you won't be around to be worried about it anyway. But actually, you know, the ways you die of aging, they're all horrible. You die of cancer. You don't just like go to sleep one, one night and not get up the next morning. You have years, maybe even decades struggling with chemo and like getting through and it relapsing and this and that. Heart disease, it slowly robs your independence because you get less able to get around the house or play with your grandkids or engage in your hobbies. And it's just this gradual, horrible process of decline in every possible way. So it's not as though you just die instantly. And that's that's that a huge other side of the balance sheet with all of these knotty problems, which isn't to say there isn't something to be thought about, <laughs> is the age is the fact that aging is such a huge humanitarian problem. And to think about the pension specifically, I think we're just going to have to work longer. But if you're in great health and, you know, maybe you're able to only do it a few days a week because, you've, you know, you've got something of a pension, you can sort of be semi-retired. I'd be pretty happy with that. I've got plenty of stuff I still want to be doing at that time. And I think actually the, the other real commonality with these um, sort of ethical conundrums that aging or curing aging would throw up we're going to have to deal with them anyway the pension age in the uk is 65 years or it's actually it's just increased it started increasing in, in uh, 2019 but until 2019 it was 65 years old that pension age was first set in the 1920s and in that time life expectancy in the uk i think has gone up by about 23 years which just shows, you know, people in the 1920s who made it to 65, there were a handful of them, and they were basically so ill they couldn't work, and they were going to die a couple of years later. So it's sort of crazy that politicians have left this thing completely untouched as the population ages, as the economy changes. All this stuff has sort of happened underneath. I think that's that's true. You know, the other thing I've heard, the theory I've heard for a lot of young people is that because we're going to live longer and we probably won't get to retire at 65 like our parents did, is that maybe we should work you know, five years, then take a one year gap year and do these like mini retirements along the way so that we could work till we're, you know, 80 or 90. <laughs> but we have like, you know, 10 years of retirement throughout the course of our professional career, which I thought that was an interesting theory, too. And actually, I think like no matter what age you retire, it's always good to take a little break or sabbatical in between things. Definitely. So I want to switch gears. So, you know, Clearly, we're doing a lot of science. We're trying to reverse senescent cells and all of these diseases. And maybe by the time you and I are, are 50, um, <laughs> we'll be taking some drug that helps us. But there are people right now who are listening who probably would like to slow down their aging process in general. So what are some of the practical tips and advice from the book that you can give us that would help us slow down the aging process just on our own? I've got a chapter of health advice in the book and it really like falls into two quite separate camps. One of them is the stuff that's really obvious. It's the stuff like eating well, do not smoke. Like I can't emphasize hard enough. If you want to live a long time and you're smoking, you should, that's the very first thing you should, you should do. Get some exercise, all this kind of stuff. The reason that 
Firstly, I included it because it's all true. You know, when we're 50, when we're 60, I want to be in good enough health to take those first anti-aging treatments. And the longer and healthier I can live, the greater my chance of doing that. So that's really, really sort of encouraged me. I was never a couch potato before, but nonetheless, I try and make sure I get my exercise, you know, try and eat a few more greens and that sort of stuff. The second reason is that actually understanding the biology behind this health advice, a lot of these things that sound really sort of basic and sort of, you know, the stuff your mum might have told you, they literally slow down the aging process. Like smoking, obviously your lungs bear the brunt of all the toxic stuff you're breathing in when you smoke, but actually it increases inflammation throughout the body. It just basically seems to accelerate aging. It's, it, obviously, it's slightly different. You get more lung cancer than you just do by aging naturally. But all in all, it really is very much like an acceleration of the aging process. And that just really, really drives home how important and how fundamental and how much across all aspects of your health these things uh, can affect you. And then there's the stuff that isn't so obvious that an understanding of aging biology illuminates for. And I think a really great example of this is brushing your teeth. And that's because, you know, not just to try and reduce your dental bills, not just to try and you know, get, get rid of horrible, painful cavities and visits to the dentist's office, but it's because there seems to be a link between your oral hygiene, the health of your gums, the health of your teeth and the health of the rest of your body. And it seems like, so at first, this was thought to be one of these classic correlation is not causation ideas. So in the 1990s, scientists were doing these studies. They noticed that people who had really good teeth also didn't seem to get heart disease. And you're like, well, that is a correlation, but is it causative? Like, is it the fact that People who are, say, say, wealthier people, they've got more time, they can eat better, they can exercise more, they've got more time to spend on their teeth, they can spend more at the dentist. Like, you know, maybe this is, that's what's causing it. It's not really anything to do with the toothbrushing. But as we've understood more about the aging biology, you find that, so I actually mentioned just now inflammation. This is this idea of your immune system being sort of hyperactive and paranoid that happens as you get older. And it's something that drives the whole aging process. And inflammation in youth is a really, really good thing. It's the acute response of, you know, I've got an infection or I've just cut myself. Your immune system rushes to the site of the injury or the infection, clobbers the bacteria, you know, starts the wound healing process or whatever it is, then disappears. But the problem is as you get older, it starts to sort of fester and fizzle in the background, this constant paranoia. And that's what drives the aging process. Now, imagine you've got gum disease and you've got bacteria, you know, battling away in your mouth with your immune system. The reason you have to, you know, go and get cavities filled at the dentist and so on is because your immune system can't win that battle. It's sort of this ongoing war of attrition between the bacteria in your mouth and your immune system. So it's inflammation and it's ongoing, which we might call chronic inflammation, which is basically what drives the aging process or one of the factors that drives the aging process. And so that can accelerate your heart disease. It can accelerate. We think even perhaps it might be able to accelerate dementia. So there's this sort of smoking gun evidence that we found some of the bacteria responsible for gum disease in the brains of people who've got dementia. And again, we're not sure which way around that goes. It could be that those bacteria are being opportunistic and taking advantage of the sort of diseased state of the brain to sneak in. Or it could be that they're one of the causative factors behind dementia. And until we find that out, I'm going to carry on brushing and flossing and you know making sure my teeth are super clean as best I can. <laughs> Well, I mean, I know that everyone listening can't see me right now, but I think I've got pretty good teeth. Uh, so they look all right. <laughs> thank yeah. you. Thank you. <laughs> you know, I try to take care of them a lot. So I, I feel optimistic about taking care of my health. I think that's a fascinating study, by the way. And now, as you were talking, I was thinking about all the people I know who don't take good care of their teeth. And I'm like, uh oh, like. <laughs> <laughs> this it correlation causation until... thing. Yeah, I'm like, oh no, yeah. it might be in your brain. <laughs> you also say in the book, other things that we can do, sleeping well is is incredibly important, mm. right? Can you emphasize the power of sleep? Yeah, and I think that, so the, the thing with sleep is it's one of these fascinating, knotty problems. And the same is true of actually diet studies. It's really hard to give hyper-specific recommendations. Like you should get 7.34 hours of sleep a night and that is the optimal and et cetera, et cetera. The reason being, 
you can't do the gold standard clinical experiment called a randomized trial. I can't say, okay, I'm going to get all these people. They're going to get seven hours sleep for the next 40 years. I'm going to enforce it. These people, you know, how could you even force people to get 10 hours sleep? I don't think, unless I'm really tired, you cannot keep me in bed for 10 hours, et cetera, et cetera. So you can't, you clearly, like, ethically, practically cannot do the randomized trial on this. So what you have to do is watch people. And what we've noticed is there is an optimal. It's about seven to eight hours sleep a night. Um, and getting shorter than that seems to be bad for your health. And actually getting longer than that seems to be even worse for your health. But the problem is because of this correlation causation issue, you're like, are the people who are sleeping 11 hours a night doing it because they love sleep and they just can't get enough of bed? Or have they got some underlying health condition that's causing them to sleep so much longer? And therefore, that's why they're not living so long. So I think it's a good sort of idea to target that seven or eight hours. But we're not 100% sure why. The thing that really compels me a bit more from a scientific point of view is a sort of a basic mechanism. And that's that we know that while you're asleep, your body uses that opportunity to clear out junk from your brain. And so that time spent asleep, it's really, really important because your brain's doing a bit of spring cleaning. So I think knowing that and knowing that there is an optimal length of sleep and not too short is important. Again, it's just sort of encouragement enough that even if all the data aren't in, I'm going to, quite apart from the fact it makes me feel nicer in the morning, try and get my seven or eight hours a night. Yeah. And I actually just read a study too about there is a genetic tie to some of us, lucky humans or not, that only require like five hours of sleep and feel perfectly happy and healthy and rejuvenated even after five hours. So I agree with you. Like, maybe 7.3 hours is not the exact science because there may be some of you, I think my dad is this, by the way, like he he always was the one going to bed at midnight, waking up at 5 a.m., super happy, chirpy mood, like high energy. And I was like, who are you? This is insane. <laughs> but I know that, yeah, sleep is one of the most, if not the most restorative thing you can probably do mm. for your body, right? I know you said don't bother with supplements, but you also say don't bother with longevity drugs yet. Mm -hmm. So what are the types of longevity drugs people are using right now that and when should they bother with them? So there are a few different ideas and they, they, these really vary in sort of wackiness. So biohackers are doing all kinds of things. There's even a case of a tech CEO who, a sort of biotech CEO who went to Colombia and had some what's called telomerase gene therapy to try and extend her telomeres. This is something that we've got a little bit of ideas about how to do it in mice. We've got no idea if that works in humans or not. So it's quite risky and there's cancer risk associated with it. So that's sort of the, the extreme. I wouldn't, you know, go offshore and have random stem cells or, you know, genes injected into your body. However, at the sort of more moderate end, I think one of the ones one to watch and is quite exciting is a drug called metformin, which is a diabetes drug. It's one of the most widely prescribed drugs in the world. I think about 80 million prescriptions are written a year in the US. And we've been using it since the 1950s in the UK. So we've got a really, really long-term safety record. We know it's a, a pretty benign medication. And what's been noticed is that diabetics who are taking metformin actually live a bit longer the non-diabetics who aren't taking metformin because they're not diabetic. So why would they take a diabetes drug? And that's weird because diabetics, they tend to be less healthy than people who aren't diabetic. They tend to be more overweight. They have uh, more cardiovascular problems and so on. You know, what we want to understand is, is it the metformin that's driving that? So the reason I say yet is there's just about to be a trial for metformin uh, called TAME, targeting aging with metformin. It's going to happen in the States. It should have started now, but COVID delayed it like, you know, as so many things. And the idea is they're going to do the proper gold standard. Again, randomized trial. This is how we find things out in medicine. We give half the people uh, metformin, half the people a placebo that they don't know isn't metformin. And we see if either group lives longer, if either group gets age-related diseases earlier or later than the other one. And if the people taking the real metformin, you know, get cancer later, get heart disease later and die later, then it seems that the metformin is indeed doing what we think it might do which is slow down the whole aging process. The issue is, as I say, we haven't got all the data now, this observational data that we've got. Maybe the reason that the diabetics taking metformin live longer 
isn't because they're taking metformin. It's because they're diabetic. So they go to their doctor once every few months to have you know, various things checked out. They, they know they've got high blood pressure if they have and they're taking the right medication, et cetera, et cetera. So it could be that those non-diabetics just never go to the doctor and then fall over dead without diabetes. So that's why you need to do the randomized trial. And that's why I say yet, yeah, because I feel like things like senolytics, things like metformin, there's another drug called rapamycin. We're going to have answers for these things, you know, in a relatively short period of time. So I think it's just a, a question of watching and waiting. Okay. Well, what about this? So what if I'm 80 right now and I'm doing these things, I'm sleeping, I'm, you know, brushing my teeth. <laughs> Is there anything else I can do to turn back the clock or, or am I just kind of stuck with what's going to go on for me? And secondary question, how much does genetics play into how long I'm living? So if you're 80, I think, it's just a question of trying to do all of that health advice. And actually, the, the really crucial thing to say is it's never too late to start. I think a really good example of um, something that I'd recommend everybody do is a bit more strength training. And this is something that I think I was quite naive to before doing the research for the book. Your strength declines, I think it's by about 10% per decade after the age of 30. So it's, you know, it's this sort of slow decline of muscle strength and muscle mass. And actually, that decline is significantly reversible. In that, it's basically, you know, if you do some strength training, if you do some exercise to train those muscles, you can reverse that decline to a large extent. And a really, really sort of compelling study I found had, I think it was a two-month program of strength training for people in their 90s. And these people got dramatically fitter. You know, they could lift more, they could walk further and faster, even though they're that old already. So clearly, it's, it's never too late to start with this kind of stuff. You know, whatever your age, aging is cumulative. And so, you know, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago, but the second best time is now. And that is genuinely the case. That's the only cliche my editors let me sneak into the book. And I think it's because it's just such a really, really good example. In terms of genetics, that is a, a fascinating and difficult question. And the answer is far less than you'd think for most of us. So the, the data that I've seen suggests that about, and this is a broad range because there's a bit of controversy, but somewhere between like five and 25%, so less than a quarter of your longevity is related to your you know your parents longevity effectively so that means that you know if your parents lived into their 60s or their 80s you've got a lot to play with it doesn't really make a lot of difference to how long you're going to live that other 80 percent or so it's somewhere between lifestyle and luck and obviously luck you can't do anything about but the lifestyle you can try and optimize the only exception to this is that if you've got a family member who lived a really long time we're talking like late 90s 100s then there does seem to be an increased genetic predisposition there. So if you've got a sibling or a parent who lived to 100, you've got a 10 times greater chance of doing so yourself. This is great So there's me. clearly some kind of genetics of these like extreme longevity. But for most of us who've got parents who lived an average amount of time, there's, you know, it's all to play for for the rest of us. Okay, well, I think this is good news for me because I've had multiple grandparents and great-grandparents live between like 92 and 96, which might I feel like maybe, maybe I'm getting up there. <laughs> But and I have good teeth. I mean, all the odds are working yeah, in my favor right now. the boxes. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Andrew, I would love to do a lightning round as we wrap up with this a little bit. So uh -huh. I'm going to ask you a few questions and just tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. Sure. All right, here we go. Number one, what food can slow down the aging process? Vegetables. In what country do people live the longest? Japan. Oh. What's your favorite way to de-stress to fight aging? Exercise. It's just so good for your mind and your body. Is there a cure for the hangover? <laughs> Not drinking. <laughs> <laughs> what book apart from yours should we read? Uh, the Precipice by Toby Ord is what I'm going to recommend. It's a book about existential risk. Oh. So the idea of risks that could eradicate the whole of humanity. And uh, 
Toby Ord is one of the philosophers who's really concerned about this because say uh, something destroyed 99% of humanity. That's really bad because loads of people die. If something went that final percent and killed 100% of humanity, then that's an or that's like hugely, hugely worse because not only does it kill all those people, it also extinguishes all of our future potential as a species. And given that we could potentially you know, live for billions and billions of years in the universe and expand to trillions and trillions of people, we should be extra, extra careful to make sure that even if something happens that kills 99% of humanity, we've always got somebody left to carry on the human species. Yes. And it's this really fascinating book about all the different natural risks, things like asteroids and things like artificial intelligence, the human created risks right. that could potentially wipe us all out and why we should really concentrate on avoiding that. Okay. So that was not a lightning answer. No, it, it but I love this. A bit of explaining oh God, I'm downloading book, this right now, even while we're talking. This is amazing. <laughs> I've always thought about that too. I'm like, what's going to happen when there's one person left in the world? All right. Okay. Last question. What is the most interesting statistic you've discovered in your research? Oh, that's tricky. That is very tricky. I mean, the, the one that changed my career is a definite contender. The fact that humans risk of death doubles every eight years. I just find that there's, there's so much to unpack in that. It's so compelling. So I think I'm going to go with that one. Okay, I like that. It's one. simple, but it's effective. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so, and then lastly, we like to leave our listeners with a little project or homework assignment. So what would you recommend that everyone listening try this week to help them feel a little bit younger? Now, this is going to sound like a strange one as a piece of health advice, but I think everybody should write to their representatives or their senators or any of their sort of political, depending on where you are in the, in the world, and tell them we need to invest more in aging biology. Because I think as long as you're trying to tick all those basic health advice boxes, you know, you're eating relatively well, you're exercising, you're doing all that sort of stuff, you're brushing your teeth, etc. The single biggest determinant of how long and how healthy you and I, everyone else in the world, our friends, our relatives is going to live is progress in aging biology. And so we just need to invest more money. And I think the real problem, the reason I wrote this book is because we need to raise awareness of this. And that's not because I'm some kind of genius. It's because they don't teach it in undergrad courses for biologists. It's not in textbooks. And so therefore they don't have this inspiration to go into aging biology. They need telling about how important this stuff is too. Same with doctors. My wife's a doctor. Uh, when I met her, I think she thought I was crazy as I sort of started explaining all this stuff about trying to treat the aging process. But now she's sort of internalized that and seen that, you know, this just isn't something they're taught in medical school. It's really, really important. And then, the, you know, as I say, the reason I want to get in touch with politicians and policymakers is they don't know this. I think a lot of people think this is some kooky sci-fi madness that we can slow down aging itself. But actually, it's just normal medicine. And the quicker we can get that word out there, the quicker we can normalize this idea and show people its huge, huge potential the longer and healthier all of us are going to live around oh, the world. I love it. Well, everyone, uh, this is Andrew Steele, and his book is called Ageless, The New Science of Getting Older Without Getting Old. And I've already read, I was like quick to this as soon as it came out because I'm just so fascinated by it. I am going to write to my politician, and I hope everyone out there will too. And Andrew, where else can we find you if we want to follow you and your work? I am all over social media, but I've got a different handle on every service just to keep everyone on their toes. I'm at Stato, S-T-A-T-T-O on Twitter. I'm Andrew J. Steele on Instagram. And I'm Dr. Andrew Steele, so D-R. Andrew Steele, all one word, on YouTube and on Facebook. And if you want to get a copy of the book, you can buy one at ageless.link. Love it. Love it. Well, I hope you get some new follows out of this. Thank you so much for being here. And we really appreciate it. I think we're all going to be practicing our anti-aging a little bit more than normal because of this. And if you guys out there enjoyed the show today, please make sure to leave us a virtual high five by rating and reviewing it on Apple Podcasts. And until then, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Teach Me Something New, a production of iHeartRadio and Brit Co. I'm your host, Britt Morin. 
Find more information about each episode at Brit.co slash listen. You can also find me on social media. I'm at Brit or follow us at Brit and Co. Teach Me Something New is executive produced by Ali Ives and Ali Perry with additional production and sound design by Mark Lemmerjazy and Aaron Peterson.